how do you now feel about the questions that they were raising? Do you, do you, do you think they were legitimate questions or do you think it was just a, a sleazy attempt to retrade and grind you down? It was, a, it, was a, it was a sleazy way of getting a grinding me down. Welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm your host, John Orlo, and today on the show, we're going to hear from Paul Nielsen, who built home tech to $20 million in revenue, $2 million of profit before he sold it a few years ago for a cool $8 million. Before we get to Paul, I just want to point out that you can get the show notes for Paul's episode over at builttosell.com. There you'll find links to all the things we talked about in the episode, along with some definitions. You know, the world of M&A is filled with acronyms and lingo, which I think is designed to purposely confuse entrepreneurs. So what we try to do is demystify this process by decoding some of that vocabulary and the tribal language that is associated with M&A. So you can all find that on the show notes page, which you'll find at builttosell.com. I also want to make a quick thank you shout out to Sherry from Toronto, who wrote a wonderful review on iTunes. She said, I read John's book years ago, aka before COVID when time had actual meaning. And another business owner put me on to his podcast. I listened to just one episode before taking a call from a potential acquirer, and it was a wealth of valuable information. Thank you, she says. So thank you, Sherry, from my hometown of Toronto. Very kind and generous review. We've also got an anonymous review on iTunes this week, a new one. I've been loving this podcast. Unlike other shows, John dives deeply into what it takes to build and successfully sell a business packed with so much value. Give it a listen. So both Sherry and on our anonymous reviewer, uploaded those this week. And if you're wondering how to support the show, wow, does a review mean the world to us? It means the show gets picked up by the algorithms, people find it. And of course, that helps us expand the audience for the show. So if you're wondering how to support the show, a review on your favorite podcasting app is an amazing gift. All right, back to Paul Nielsen. Here's what I want you to listen for in this episode. At about the halfway point of the episode, he describes the point where Home Tech received an acquisition offer. They were doing $14 million in revenue, $1.4 million in profit or EBITDA when they received an acquisition offer, which Paul agreed to in principle only to enter due diligence. And the tactic the acquirer used during due diligence was to hire an outside firm to write a diligence report, which in and of itself is not that sleazy. But the tactic they used then was to invite Paul to come to a meeting in Auckland, New Zealand, where their headquarters was, and sit in a room by himself and read the diligence report prior to meeting with the acquirer to consummate the deal. He will go into details as to why that was tactic was used and the impact it had on a negotiation which ultimately blew up. Years later, he sold the business for about double what he was going to accept. So it had a happy ending. But for you, I want you to make sure you don't fall victim to the same trick 
So have a listen to that point in the interview. Some other stuff to listen for is how to systematize your business, how to transition your business from a product-driven company to a purpose-driven one, how to calculate your walkaway number and know how much passive income you need to live the life of your dreams, how to spot the good cop, bad cop charade in a negotiation to sell your company, and also how to ace due diligence. All that and more in this wide-ranging interview with Paul Nielsen. And I also want to point out that Paul is from Wellington, New Zealand. And one of my favorite places on earth is the South Island of New Zealand. I had the opportunity to spend a bunch of time there at the invitation of Rob Nixon. And man, it is a beautiful country. The people are wonderful And they also have, to my ear, a relatively strong accent. So here's my suggestion. I want you to let Paul's wonderful New Zealand Kiwi accent just wash over you. I want you to listen. And after five or 10 minutes, I think you will start to understand him in all his eloquence. So please give it 10 minutes because I find that if you just sort of let your mind drift a little bit, you will start to be able to pick up the intonations in what is a beautiful and unique accent to the anglicized world, much of the anglicized world. So I hope you are able to understand everything that Paul says and enjoy this wonderful interview with an entrepreneur from one of the most beautiful countries in the world, New Zealand. So have a listen, enjoy this wide ranging interview with Paul Nielsen. Paul Nielsen, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Uh, It's great to be here. And uh, yeah, I just can't believe that I'm actually talking to you, John, because I've been recommending your book so often, you know, after reading it, after I sold my business. So I can't believe that book actually gets all the way down to Wellington, New Zealand. I think that's awesome. It's amazing. A book is funny because it's such an analog technology. It's such a physical technology. And then when I hear people like you across the world that have actually gotten a physical copy of it, I think that's awesome. It's so cool. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was mountain biking and there was a commercial event, and uh, this guy said this thing about selling his business. I said, "Mate, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta read this book," you know. And just uh, yeah, that's just one of many, many times I've recommended it. So yeah, it's just yeah, it's awesome. down in New Zealand. That's out. awesome. Well, thank you for spreading the word. Tell me about this company, Home Tech. How did you get into the business in the first place? Well, it's a bit of a long story. I started business in 87 in a similar sort of industry in the home improvement industry. And we all know what happened in October 87. And New Zealand was decimated. It took a couple of years to get into it, but very naive entrepreneur, started a business, wasn't very well set up, lack of structure, lack of financial control. And basically five years later, I was I've still got my statement of position from 93 where I was minus $50,000. So I went in there with a, you had a nice house in the country at 28 years of age and 32 years of age was basically broke and the business went through a year, a year later. But out of the blue, uh, July 92, I got a call and this was before the internet and email and I got a call from a guy called Malcolm Pugh. He said, look, I've been in a franchising seminar. And I've seen this product called SolarTube, which is a tube of Skylight product and uh, it's in Australia, it's going to America, and we want someone to run it in New Zealand. And to me, having been already in the skylight industry, I thought, oh, that sounds really boring. He said, look, I'll send you a brochure. So he sent me a brochure. Three days later, I was in Australia, procured the rights, um, jumped into business with two other guys coming out of the construction industry. They financed it. I did all the uh, sweat labor, and uh, yeah, we kicked it off in December 
the third, nineteen ninety-two. But what we did, did buy you call it? A, a did you call it a tubeless skylight? So I'm familiar with a skylight. Oh, sorry. Yes, my New Zealand pronunciation. So no, no. But I, like, I, like, when you have a skylight in a home or office, it brings natural light in. Uh, so I've seen those, and this was a new sort of. Design yeah, for the concept the guy developed sorry, it was tubular as opposed to square, and just ah. so the pipe basically piping light into um, into your home. And it started off in the residential market, and then we went to commercial, and you know, we'd store you know a hundred in a commercial building or um, put them wherever. Is that right? You bought the rights for yeah, the product did, in New Zealand. By the end of '93, I'd set up twenty five licensed stores around New Zealand from one end of the country to the other. So that enabled us to actually market the product nationwide with TV or whatever, home show. So we're right into it. Let me stop you there. So 93, you you procure the rights to this product for New Zealand, and then you get a shipment of them. So if you're broke in the other side of your life, how are you sort of juggling the cash flow to get by the rights, but also by the inventory? Well, I didn't put anything in, but my partners were, they came out of the uh, construction industry, they were out of the construction industry, done pretty well pre-share market crash. They funded it all. But also, I learned a lot uh, from a guy, a particular guy called Malcolm Hughes, because he said to me, Paul, or well, talking about money, and he was using a cash book of all things, you know, to get set up in his room. And, and I, I had to do everything. I had to do the marketing, and I ended up training in stores. I had to do all the technical side, and we only had a, one other person in the business other than the storeman. But so they funded it, but he taught me, one of his sayings was, Paul, walk around with, with bank balances in your head. And, and I was with him, we're all still good mates. And I bought him out three years later. He gave me that opportunity. But um, yeah, and the thing is, within 18 months, we paid back all the capital that was required. I think the first full financial year, we netted 300000 um, bottom line profit, so it just went off, and um, yeah, it was just it was just a, it was just a fantastic journey. It was yeah, but if I didn't have that university training five years earlier of losing everything, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And um, so having going back to losing all that, uh, losing it, that I was quite embarrassed for about twenty five years. I never, I never, I tried to hide it from everyone, but now I look back and I'm actually quite proud of what I did because I put everything on the line, you know. So, yeah, so we got, got into it about seven years later, we introduced some ventilation products, started to lobby our national housing, uh, social housing um, group, Housing New Zealand, and uh, got a, a nationwide contract installing ventilation across the country. And then we got into other sales channels, volume group builders, et cetera. One significant thing, though, was that I go back to that flawed uh, model that we got supplied with, like, 93 I got introduced to the book Behemoth, and that's where I had my first experience on systemizing. And I went on to systemize the business, particularly our in-home selling system, because at that stage, most of it was about going in the homes, and I systemized that, and that was adopted by Solitude International, and that that uh, system was still in place. So this is a beginning in that those systems were very important at, at the end when I sold my business, and at the end, twenty million dollars. Netting EBIT about ten percent averaging, so we're we're in a good place. It was, uh, and we had people knocking on our door. 
Got it. So before we get to the the decision to sell, I'd love to sort of just understand a little bit about the way you thought of your relationship with your customers, because in the beginning, you you sort of bought the rights to this this product, this new solar panel technology or uh, ceiling skylight technology. Yes, yeah. And then then you got into other products, some ventilation products. So was the, the end customer, what was the brand name of the, the lighting product? It was called Solar 2. Solar 2. Okay. Like T-U-B-E. Yeah, T-U-B-E. Got it. Got it. So was the end customer buying from Solar Tube? and assumed that you were just a local installer, just in air quotes, or were they buying from home tech and you happened to supply solar tube product? Do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah, I do. So, so yeah, we're, in the import, we're the importer and the marketer, and then we have a, a licensed installer who's basically a salesperson who go into the home and sell the product the closure rate was 67% uh, generally. Um, and we would initially, with the, the fluid model, we, we had those guys on commission and product on consignment. It's absolutely a mess. So we, we simply went to a model of um, buying the product and selling it to them. They would invoice the end customer. Most of our leads came from referrals, about 68, word of mouth wow. referrals. And um, we had the highest market penetration of solar tubes in the world for 25 years. I think it's still the case um, of any country. Yeah, it was just a, it was a great journey. And uh, that ended up probably only around about 30% of our business because we got into heating as well. Uh, we had a contract for noise mitigation at the airport um, and, and those sort of things. So really, we, we became a company that created healthier homes. We worked on our purpose a couple of years before we sold it. Um, better spaces, better better lives. And it's all about that daylighting, heating, and ventilation. Healthier home. What made you want to explore your purpose as a company? It's interesting. I woke up, I was on holiday one. Uh, you know, when you go away on Christmas, sometimes you're really exhausted. I slept for about three days, and uh, I normally don't have much sleep. And I woke up one day and said, I haven't really put or visualize to anyone what the company is, what the model is. So I scratched around and put on a, on a one sheet of paper and I got a cartoonist to do some, and that was the model. And then through an EO uh, colleague who um, specialized in purposes, uh, and we need to rebrand at the same time. So we did the whole thing, the whole rebrand, new logo, and went through this thing. And I just, um, when we're going, you know, being miserable as I am, spending money, um, Going through that process that appeared to be expensive at the time was was not expensive at all. But what it made us turn from a uh, a product driven company to a purpose or driven company. So it went from driving a product to better spaces, better lives. Our you know, whole purpose now was to improve people's lifestyles. So that was an interesting exercise. But I I'm more about um, a purpose of a company rather than the perhaps vision and. Um, Etc. I just mission statements. I think the purpose, what you're all about, is uh, is so important. And I think when you, that's what leads leads. Once you know what you're, oh, sorry, I, 
I better move on because I'll start to uh, <laughs> be a bit uh, opinionated on that. So, no, no, I, I opinions are great. What were you going to say? Well, I was going to say, I think you've got to get your purpose right first, and then everything else flows behind it. You know, you need to know where you're going and what it is, and that helps you with your focus. You know, just uh, and that's the other thing about doing that branding exercise and waking up one day and putting it all on one piece of paper. You know, we knew where the focus was. Um, and when someone come along and say, hey, what want you to sell our product? And you said, well, it doesn't fit that model. Uh, thanks, but no. And that was made us more focused. It's interesting because you went through that exercise of discovering your purpose relatively late into your business journey. It, it had been many years that you had been running home tech uh, with, you know, you've got the, the first year into the solar tube and then the ventilation products. But it was years into the business before you sat down and actually got the animator and wrote up a purpose. I'm wondering, was that the right call? Was it, would it like, how do you think things would be different had you created a purpose from the beginning? Do you think that would have been, Uh, like, how do you think that would have changed? It would have been a lot different. And, you know, I reflect back now, I don't think much about the business I sold, but what I do think about things I could have done better. And, one of the things I could have done better is follow those built-to-sell principles. You know, because what happens with an entrepreneur, as we all know, we like chasing shiny things. And something goes, oh, that look, hey, that seems good. We'll start importing that, and you're stuck on with stock in your warehouse, or something doesn't sell. And and also, it ties in with our um, our discipline with accounting. We got better towards the end with our accounting and seeing how profitable our sales channels were, which we weren't doing before. And that all fitted in. So what I would have done is not gone into so many sales channels, not gone into so many products. I would have just focused more. That, that beautiful product, Solar Tube, um, that where we started and our national contract with, with you know, installing ventilation in, in um, housing New Zealand houses. And probably would have focused on that. I think we'd be far better off, probably more around the EBIT and um, not as busy. So and use and also got introduced to the eighty twenty rule and all those things. So it all tied in together. So I suppose you sort of tip, uh, reach a tipping point in your business, probably because you get into a zone. You know, all those years and you're not bogged down in your business anymore. And all of a sudden, you, know, you just go to a different level. And you know, we had a bad experience with a company tried to acquire us, and two and a half years later, we were doing thirty nine percent more turnover and far more EBIT than what we were before. What happened with the uh, bad experience? Can you share kind of where you were at when you went through this sort of failed M and A attempt? Like, what was your top line? What was your bottom line? And then sort of t- tell me the story. Um, well, it goes back seven years now, and look, we had some other approaches, and I came across I met this person, and then they're running a. It was a company that was owned by venture capitalists and uh, very, very uh, high profile company in our industry, and. Um, they came along and look, I was pretty naive and we weren't ready to sell anyway. And they came along with a figure and that seems quite nice because I'd actually planned this to sell the business 10 years earlier. I, I learned how to do goal setting. I've got my goals from 1985, December the 31st. I still got the same piece of paper <laughs> and every year I renew them and I still renew my goal. I actually had a goal, a goal session yesterday with um, some EO buddies 
So I'd set, set my goal to, to sell the business and it wasn't necessarily about the amount of money I was going to get. It was about what would enable me to never work again for the rest of my life. So along came this company, seemed all nice. They said, oh, we're going to give you this nice bit of money and you know, it comes along with a term sheet. Oh, this sounds good. And then we started to get into this due diligence and it was just, they were quite aggressive, you know. And But I wasn't ready to sell, but all, not only from the point of view of the company wasn't ready to sell, I wasn't ready. I didn't have the expert team around me. You know, and I've used my local, you know, my normal lawyer and these people are nice and not going to screw me over. And they, you know, they got really aggressive, pushing, but the due diligence had gone for a long time. So they got an um, outside accountant to do the due diligence. and But I can sense that they... I was waiting for the little tap on the head, trying to, I knew they are going to start to grind, you know. And I said, right, we've done the due diligence. Let's have this meeting in Auckland. So I said, hey, we'll come along about three quarters an hour earlier, Paul, and we'll let you read the uh, due diligence report. So so he stuck me in a room for three quarters an hour. And then I've read it, and they're like, I walk into this room. I'm not with anyone else. I haven't got an M&A lawyer. And because these people are pretty nice people, you know. And then the grind started. I could see their faces. They're just looking at me, eyeballing me, and they started asking all these questions. And they, it wasn't very nice. It wasn't very pleasant at all. And I got to a stage where after about an hour, I said, hey, look, I, I know where this is going. Thank you for the opportunity. Stood up, walked out. Hmm. And that was it. But what I experienced, I learned so much and, and through going through there. You know, that, hey, I need a good team around me. I need a you know, really... A great recommended M&A lawyer and then stronger accountant. We just had recently changed accountants. So, um, yeah, we got strong. I never had a, a proper in-house accountant. By the end, we sold, when we did eventually sell, we had two in-house accountants. We're really strong before, in our accounting. Before we go there, let me just, I just want to go back to what the story for a second. So just for a little bit of clarity, uh, kind of roughly, what were where were you in terms of top line revenue and profit at the time of this kind of conversation with the company? We're doing about 14, 14 million. I think we're doing about one point four. The multiple was around about three and a half. I think they were offering around three and a half. Yeah, I was trying to find the uh, term sheet, but because uh, it goes back seven years now, but. Also, there was just disguised earn out in there. And there was, a, uh, there was some two trances amount of money. And I always remember a mate of mine said to me um, afterwards, he said, never take an earn out because you're never going to get it. And, and I learned from that. And um, I want to just dig in because I think a lot of people might learn something from this, Paul, because I think, uh, again, a lot of our listeners are being approached and, and they get sort of oftentimes um uh, into conversations with potential acquirers where the, the acquirer seems friendly and they're all happy and it's all wonderful and then they get into the room and and, and the tone changes so it, it would just be helpful so you're at 14 million a million four on the bottom line ballpark these i mean it's it's fine if we're roughly and their offer was around three and a half so call it if i'm doing the math right sort of kind of oh it's four four million yeah. ish something like that in that neighborhood yeah. Yeah. And so you're like, okay, well, that's a big chunk of change. And that sounds great. So you, you have this meeting. 
they say, come, I love the tactic of read the due diligence report. It's, it's your friggin' report. It's not my report. I don't need to read it, but you're like, <laughs> that was a tactic from them, right? Cause they've got the third party due diligence company and it's not me. It's like, they're playing the good cop and it's this due diligence company. That's the bad cop. And so you have to read the due diligence report. And they're obviously telling you all these terrible things about the company. So then the cut at that point, the damage is done, but they start picking you apart in the meeting. Did they, you know, so they were obviously trying to, to, to pick apart your business and, and retrade. Did they raise the specter of lowering the valuation or did you preempt them by saying, look, guys, I know where this is going. I'm out. I preempted because some of the questions they were asking me were, they weren't actually, they were, they were well informed. And it was, Money being uh, fired at me from this uh, the due diligence accountant, and yeah, quite a nasty sort of guy. And he said, "Oh, you know, this particular sales channel, your sales were down, blah blah blah." And you know, going back three or four years ago, and I said, "Yeah, but New Zealand had the last um, building ever that year." So, <laughs> what are you going on about? You know, how did that oh, feel for you? Know, it was terrible. Yeah, you know, I built this beautiful, but but one really important thing. Which in the whole due diligence process went on for a while. It just went on forever. In the back of my mind, I was saying to myself, "Paul, you've earned, you've earned this. You've you this is your life for twenty five years. You built this business up. If you get it wrong, you get it very very wrong." And and that's you know, the motivator for walking out. I just you know, it was going to go really bad. And um, yeah, all that all that, all that energy, you know, being away from the family and. And you know, and, and the uh, journey could have been all destroyed in quick time by taking an, an offer from a uh, which wasn't a very good offer. And, and you've had some time to reflect on this. How, how do you now feel about the questions that they were raising? Do, do you think they were legitimate questions, or do you think it was just a a sleazy attempt to retrade and grind you down? It was a, it was a, it was a sleazy way of getting or grinding me down. And um, yeah, but they just set they just set it up. They just set it up to they were going to screw me up. But they picked up that I was naive and I wasn't prepared. And you know, as I say, land yeah. of slaughter. They just they and they're not look. This is not a generalisation, but because I had a when I sold the business, I had a fantastic um, journey there. But um, yeah, they were just really there was so what they wanted to do because they sold about three years later. They was just wanted to. Gobble us up, take the revenue, take the bottom line, bundle us up with some other companies, and, and flick it on. You know, so yeah. You mentioned um, the four million dollars had had a kind of veiled or hidden burnout. Can you just explain what that means? Because again, a lot of people listening will be like, "Yeah, I don't want one of those." But in what way was it hidden, and how did you discover it? I tried to find that term sheet, but it was something like two million dollars cash and. Uh, Further down the track, if we reach a certain uh, point, you no know, profitability or whatever. That was their uh, devil part, really. That um, yeah, they probably had no intention of trying to make that happen anyway, because they're more seasoned. What they're going to do is come in and chop overheads out of the company, and yeah, yeah. So okay, yeah, I wouldn't have ever seen that. So they kind of flashed the big number of we're going to pay you, you know, four million. But then as you kind of got into the details of the actual offer, it was two million in cash plus the potential for another two if certain profitability thresholds were met. 
Yeah, and also, John, just a point now is that um, thinking about it is that, you know, I use my own lawyer that I've been using for 20 years. If I'd used an experienced MA lawyer, he would have picked it up in, in no time, but also got that person to do negotiation. So when it came to the to finally selling the business where most of the negotiation was done well after we set on price, et cetera, basically handed over to to my lawyers to, to finish the journey off, there was a lot easier process and, and having that expertise around me. You know, just Yeah. Yeah. One of the things we talk a lot about is the importance of having an a mergers and acquisitions team that is that's what they do so like an MA lawyer uh you know an MA like somebody as opposed to a, a general list that you may have had to incorporate your business but maybe doesn't necessarily do MA law it's a it's a different um you know it's a, it's a different discipline yeah and i think if um that that bad due diligence experience that company if i had so like Ashill right at the beginning, I would never have gone through that 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 trauma. That was a very it was a bad experience, you know, stressful. Um, yeah. Take your take your eye off the ball, you know, your company doesn't perform as well, what's going on and fix your confidence. And yeah, it just wasn't a very pleasant experience. Mm-hmm. What was the reaction of the potential acquirer when you got up? to leave the room? Oh, particular guy followed me out, said, look, um, yeah, it didn't go that well. Um, I don't think that accounting company did that good a job, and I don't think I'll use them again. Uh, yeah, sorry, hasn't worked out. <laughs> and so where does it go from there? So so you have this sort of failed M&A deal. That can be quite demoralizing, as you rightly say, uh, can sap your energy and, and, and suck your confidence. But, but but you picked up the pieces. So, I mean, take it from there. Where, where does the story go from there? In two, uh, 2016, I went to a seminar um, organized by the bank, and it was a, it was a presentation by an organization called Entrepreneur Organization, EO. And all of a sudden, I'm in this organization, didn't know what I was getting into. And then um, someone mentioned my name to Ernst Young. Um, and then I ended up a finalist in the New Zealand Entrepreneur Year Award that year. Oh, the Ernst and Young Entrepreneur of the Year. Yeah. No, well. Yeah. And that was a great experience. And then, but it was also mainly from the networking point of view. And started to talk to a few of the EY guys. And they said, hey, have you thought of selling your business? Seems to be a common thing. People say, you're thinking about selling your business or thought about selling. They said, oh, look, well, how about we put information into running for you uh, together and we'll start showing it around. So... And again, being quite tight, I bitched and moaned about the cost, but it was one of the best things they ever did. So the company, you know, I've shored up the company, put better structure and processes in place. We're very strong. Um, now I've got an information meter around and I'm showing it around. And what are you in terms of top line? This to is the, when you're kind of close to 20 million now? or Yeah, close, close to 20 million. We're averaging around about 2 mil um, in, profit. in, in profits. And then... Uh, we go to a EO university, business university in Hyderabad, and I'm in a bar on Friday night, as you do, and talking to a guy, another EO from, from New Zealand, and he said, oh, have you ever thought of selling your business? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, <laughs> I've got an IM or information memorandum, I'll, I'll send it to you overnight. So this guy called Tony Falkenstein from public listed company, at that time, Just Water, now called Just Life. Um, 
So next morning I got a text, hey, do you want to meet for coffee? And uh, so the moral of the story there was uh, really we were ready now. We, we got prepared. We're ready to sell tomorrow, basically. Yeah, you had this. Inf- so I'm, I'm used to hearing the term SIM or confidential information memoranda, but you're in New Zealand, it may be referred to as, as just an IM or information memoranda, but it's a it's effectively a yeah, book right, that describes yeah. your business in quite a lot of detail, including your revenue and profitability and projections and so forth. So you're an EO in Hyderabad and you happen to have a drink with, the CEO or founder of Just Water, which is, uh, explain what Just Water does. Oh, they just, uh, they do um, supply water, you know, drinking water to residential and mainly commercial um, uh, business. You know, you go along. So if you're in, if you're in a home and you like, I mean, I think in New Zealand, it's the same here in Canada, you know, the, the water to the tap is fine, but some people want the extra clean filtered water. And so they yeah. would, would install the, the filtered water systems. Yeah, but mainly, mainly in the commercial area, and they had a couple of other subsidiaries as well, and been listed on the New Zealand Stock Exchange for 15 years, and so long established. And they were on the acquisition trail, as it turned out, and they, they were struggling to buy 100% of companies. So they, their strategy was to go along, people find people like myself, and buy 51%. So they could get a foot in the door. So next morning, we discussed. Um, just over, yeah, Hyderabad, a cup of tea. Uh, and we uh, came to a figure of, yeah, and um, shook hands, basically. Wait, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's a big leap of uh, logic here. So you're, you're at EO University. You have this drink. He says, let's meet up for coffee. And all of a sudden, he's making you an offer for the business? Yeah. Like, literally, like, and what, what was the offer? Well, the offer was uh, you know, four million. Oh, well, it ended up at four million, and then Tony's probably going to listen to this, uh, Tony Porpenstein. Um, but there was some uh, some discussion around taking shares as well, um, which in hindsight probably would have been a good idea. But look, I'm not very good in the share market. If I go in the share market, everyone should get out because I'm not very good at it. So, um, and I just wanted clean cash. And uh, and bearing in mind, I, I set this, you know. In the back of my mind is how much money do I need? I don't have to work for the rest of my life. And um, yeah, so we do a little bit of negotiation, and then yeah, and he obviously had been speaking to his uh, fellow board members back in New Zealand, and yeah, they still a deal. So he goes back to his board, and after the Hyderabad event, and then obviously they got approval. He got approval to make you the offer to consummate the deal, and you guys agreed to proceed. You sold fifty-one yeah, percent of your business. Yeah, and the term sheet came through, and we signed that. And I got a, I got a M and A lawyer involved, Kudashul, and you know, sort of um, more prepared now. They decided to do their own due diligence. You know, there's a lot of accountants in that board, and um, yeah, and it was a very pleasant experience. Probably one of the reasons, also because we were prepared. You know, we've we've been through that bad due diligence. We got it all there. And of course, it was a great company. It was transparent. Um, How did you feel about giving up control, but but holding on to such a big chunk of your equity? Because here you are selling fifty one percent. Sometimes you sell ninety percent, you hold ten. Well, at that point, you've sold ninety. So who cares about the ten? But in your case, you've sold fifty one percent. So control, but you've still got a huge chunk of your wealth sitting in this company you no longer control. Did you think about that? 
Yeah, I did, but I also had enough. That chunk was enough to help, you know, first of all, satisfy my goals, but to, to a certain degree. But I knew that in time, you know, I was still going to be managing director of, of home tech if, if I'm 49%. That's going to be a struggle because I like, you know, I've never had a board, never had an advisory board. Yeah. I've always made decisions myself, you know. So um, I knew it was going to be a struggle, but I got this money in the bank. And, you know, we, we, we were getting on well and you know, going to board meetings, et cetera. But as, as new companies do, they've got to bring in their, uh, their own team. They've got their own way of doing things. And come April, you know, they, they bought the company on 31st of December. Come April, I went and saw Tony and said, hey, Tony, why don't you just buy the other 49% now? And he said, Paul, I think it's a good idea, you know. Um, so he said, right, I'll give you another four mil. And, uh, but I'd already organised this, this holiday for the family in Fiji. This was before the business would even have sold to 51%. So the extent of, you know, I've got the grandchildren, children there, we're on this island in Fiji. And on June the 28th, I get this phone call from my lawyer. And he says, Paul, the money's in the bank, the final trust. And I was like a little boy in a, <laughs> a lolly shop. I was running around the island, punching, punching the air. Going, I've fucking done it. I'm sorry. I'm done it. I've done it. I've done it. I've done it. And it was so much authority than the first time. It was just because now I'm, I've done. I'm done and dusted. I've done. I've reached my goals. And I can't believe it was just, um, I just love winning, you know, whether it be sports or whatever. And it was just incredible, incredible experience. And we went out that night with the family and we had a nice meal and they were really excited. You know, when you, Show them the, you know your bank account. Say, oh, look at this. <laughs> you could do that one day. And um, yeah, it's just hard to describe how excited I was and it just thrilled. And yeah, it's just uh, yeah, it's sort of, sort of get uh, really worked up about it now. So you got to back up a little bit. So I love the Fiji story, by the way. That's amazing. So Tony, Tony buys fifty one percent. So I'm 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 trying to get my head in into his head a little bit. So so he's got you on the hook for forty nine percent. You've got some money in your jeans, but you're still motivated to kind of make this work because because you got such a ch- large chunk. But you're 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 not used to having a boss, and you're not used to having people kind of looking over your shoulder. And that was sort of his intent is to say, okay, like I'm going to bring in my own team here. So did you were the one to originally raise the specter of buying, of being bought out the, the remaining 49%. It, he, he didn't initiate that conversation. It was your initiation. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So, and what was his reaction? Like, what was his body language? What, what did, like, how, how did he react when you raised that? Just go on holiday. Just go, just go to the holiday house and, yeah, just just leave us to it. Leave us, leave us get on with it. And look, it was hard, but I actually I was surprised how that, that six months how I felt. Um, yeah, I just I wasn't too bad. I just yeah, gritted my teeth and but all, all um, so many people were in that situation. But they had a plan, and they would have um, yeah, I would have moved on eventually. So um, yeah, it was just I just fast forward and. Obviously, you know, three months into a company, they started to know it pretty well by then. And also, having the founder um, around is, can be a bit of a nuisance. 
Yeah. And, and that's why I'm curious as to know why, like there was obviously a reason that Tony didn't buy a hundred percent of your company up front. There was, there was, there was a reason oh. that he didn't do that in the beginning. And I, I'm just hey, kind of curious point. as to what changed. Yeah. Great point. Because their strategy was uh, struggling to it because they're still on the acquisition trial, but their, 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 their strategy was failing, failing to buy a hundred percent of companies. So this just go for the 51%. Now I thought of this too, if on that, in that Hyderabad cafe, if I said, Tony, how about just buy 100% rather than 51? And if we had to construct a discussion about it, put the structure in place, the explain things like that, I'm sure you would have gone for that. But it was just, they were just following their strategy. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure they're pretty delighted to, um, yeah, long established company that you know, there's a lot of traction for a lot of companies. And um, yeah. Yeah, certainly in the first few months, he would have been able to see what he had bought and realized it was a good company, well run, and therefore maybe his his appetite to buy the rest had had, had gone up in those few months. Yeah, that's possible, I guess. Yeah. Um, what was the reaction of your family in Fiji when you told them about what had happened? Oh, they just um, they were just really thrilled for, for me and my wife, Janet. And, um, you know, just because remember, they were part of the journey from when they're coming out of nappies. You know, I got photos of them that work with me and and both got on to run their own businesses as well and successful businesses. And they just understood the journey and they understood the frequent sacrifices because I've, I've got this guilt thing about Olsen absentee I'm going quite deep here, but my daughter came home from kindergarten, or play center, whatever you call it, when I was, you know, when I was setting up those 25 installers around the country, you know, three years, four months away from home because I was running a nation business and I didn't even really have much resource around me. She came home from kindergarten and there was my wife and then her, was this, her sister and there was a cat. I'm oh, sorry, her mother and sister and cat, and I was missing. So... It was sort of like um, it was, a, and that's a, sort of really hurts today. And I probably probably did push too hard, but they understood that journey, the sacrifice, because all this, you know, it's not only sacrifice of being away from home, but also like that time where I lost it all, where you had to move into a house with stuck a pee, you know, when you used to have a, a swimming pool and a nice house in the country. So they understood those those um, sacrifices, and they were just yeah, they were there for me. Have you ever? Read, I haven't read these books, so forgive me. I'm going to butcher it. But have you ever read the the the, the love languages book, the five yes, love I languages? Have. Yeah, have you? Yeah. Okay, because I think one of them. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is is around this idea of like the way I show love is I provide, like I provide economic resources. Yeah. Is that one of the love languages? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay, and it sounds like. It's out from what I'm hearing. It sounds like maybe there's some of that in 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 you. And put, I don't mean to put words in your mouth. So tell me if you think I'm wrong. But but you were trying to communicate to your daughter that I, while I missed all those years when you were young, I've I've done right by you, and I've I've achieved something. And and similarly to your wife, am I reading between the lines correctly, or or tell me if I'm wrong? Yeah, you are, and. Um... And that's part of my nature. Someone said to me the other day, "What, Paul? What are your faults? Is you too much of a giver? Because I like helping small business and I don't charge or whatever." And, and um, I was just like, and in my year role on the board of, of 
of growing Wellington. It's not about necessarily growing EO. It's about growing all those business people that come across. I get so much joy out of it. And, and, and with my children, I'll say they're both running successful businesses. It's really nice when they ring me up and say, hey, Dad, what do you think? And, you know, that's just a great feeling, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so in some ways I sort of redeemed myself from those uh, times of setting up uh, yeah, where we're at. Yeah, yeah. Well, I uh, I think it's great, and I'm glad it came full circle for you, and, and the success is amazing. So are you up for a little due diligence, a couple of quick questions that I just want a quick short answer to, and we'll, I won't ask follow-up sure, questions? Sure. All right. And I think I might know the answer to the first one, but you you tell me. What is the slimiest trick a prospective acquirer has tried to use on you to bolster their advantage? Stuck me in a room and told me to read their DD due diligence report. Yeah, I figured that was uh, that was the answer. What was the biggest mistake you made during the selling process? Um, the end selling process wasn't a mistake, but um, the first one was. But I think it was I probably left some uh, money on the table. I wish again go like the the built to sell or or not chasing so many shiny things. I wish I. Knowing what I know now, I think I could have had a far more profitable business. And, but anyway, it doesn't really matter because I'm happy. So, what was the lowest point you reached emotionally during the process of selling your company? Not as low as the uh, previous one, uh, DD. But um, I suppose it was not really low points. It was just really, is it really going to happen? You know, so you get sort of a couple of weeks. Um, into the into the due diligence, and you think, well, is it really going to? Yeah, is it really going to happen? You know, and is it all going to fall over now because it's so close? And so you start to worry about that. What was the highest moment you reached during the process of selling your company? Being on an island, Fiji, with my family, running around the island like a little kid punching the air, so I'm saying <laughs> I made it, done it, done what I planned. What resources did you draw from? You've been very generous with you mentioning Built to Sell, which is fantastic. But what else did you... Oh, you also mentioned the e-myth that was helpful for you to create systems in your company. Did you rely on any other resources, tools, conferences, online courses, books that helped you prepare to exit your company? Not really. You know... I, I, I read a lot of self-help books in my early days, like Think and Grow Rich and those sort of books. Um, mm-hmm. And discovering the e-myth was just amazing because I just people I drive people crazy about systems. I just I think systems are the most important thing about a business, and people should thought, you know it's about not that people um, are less important, but systems are, are probably more important. Um, and yeah, yes, I didn't have a board or anything like that, and just. Um, just continually learning, and every day I learn, and this one's still an EO. You know, um, every day is a learning experience. Yeah, yeah, great, great point. Um, what did you buy yourself as a trophy to commemorate this experience? I probably remember I've mentioned a couple of times. I'm pretty miserable, so um, <laughs> my 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 trophy was actually being uh, finishing up with that passive income. You know, I didn't go and buy any flash cars. I, I paid off some mortgages. Um, nothing really, nothing's really changed, but I mean, it doesn't change. I've still gone to a bottle shop and buy the $20 wine over the $30 bottle of wine. I just, um, this is the way I am. You know, it's hard to change my upbringing, but um, 
Yeah. So the trophy really was, I can, well, I say to my EO buddies, you know, I'm living the dream. So that's my trophy. Um, well, I know you're going to uh, stimulate some conversation. So I want to let people know how they can reach out to you. Uh, you're based in Wellington, New Zealand. Paul, what's the best way for folks to say hi on social media or get in touch? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, but uh, probably uh, my email, which is Paul at Nielsen, spelled the same way as AC Nielsen, N I E L S E N dot co, so dot N. Do I say Z or do I say C? Uh, what say in Canada? <laughs> You're good. But I Nielsen know what you mean. Yeah, and we'll put all that. And Nielsen is spelled a bit uniquely, so we'll put that in the show notes at builttosell.com. Paul, thanks for doing this. Oh, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for the opportunity. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Paul Nielsen. For complete show notes, including links to everything we referenced in today's episode, along with definitions for some of the technical terms referenced, visit the episode page, which can be found, as always, at builttosell.com. Paul was a nomination. And if you're wondering where our best guests come from, it's usually someone who nominates them. And so you can nominate a guest, just go to builttosell.com slash nominate. We also want to make a Big shout out to Sherry from Toronto who gave us a wonderful review on iTunes this week. If you ever get a chance, it would mean the world to us to have you rate the show on whatever podcasting app you use while you're there. Hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Today's show was produced by Haley Parkhill. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio and video engineering. And thank you to the entire community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. I'm John Warlow. Talk to you again next week.